the architects of business with EY Entrepreneur of the Year, telling the inspirational stories behind Ireland's most successful entrepreneurs. Hello and welcome to the Architects of Business, made in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year, where you will hear the inspirational stories of some of Ireland's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Sonia Lennon, broadcasting remotely from my home at this time. And on this week's show, I chat with Philip Noon, the CEO of Alto Bio, an Irish biotech company who are at the forefront of the race to find vaccines for COVID-19. Their reagents are already being used for COVID tests all around the world. If you haven't already done so, click subscribe to get shows directly into your feed. Philip Noon, CEO of AltaBio. Um, it's a real honour and privilege to have you on the show today, not least because uh, you are a gentleman who has taken one day off since March, uh, which is a real testament of how hard you and your company are working at the moment. Uh, you're at the coalface of tackling uh, the effects of COVID-19 and trying to create uh, a vaccine. Your work is phenomenal, but I think um, in the true tradition of uh, architects of business, let's start at the beginning and work up to quite an extraordinary crescendo. Mm-hmm. You came from a very large family in Dublin, am I right? That's right. Yeah, uh, youngest of a family of ten, which was uh, yeah, it's pretty unusual in in uh, growing up in South County Dublin. Um, but uh, you know, uh, I guess I was fighting for my place on the team at a at a very young age, and continue that all the way through. You know, uh, youngest is uh, of a of a group of ten, kind of gets you fighting for the front at a very early age, which is a good thing. I guess it can either go one way or the other, and uh, you you took the bat on and run with it. Um, it's really interesting looking back at your your story and seeing that from a very young age, science was really front and center. Yeah, it's you know I, I, I don't know whether that was luck or whether it was in the DNA, but um, uh, certainly um, th- you know three of my family are involved in the in the medical game. Um, my mother was uh, a nurse, worked in in the uh, the Matter Hospital originally from Galway, um, and you know I guess you know as I was talking about this recently, um, one of the things that kind of stood out for me is when a lot of my friends were heading off to Irish college. Um, I actually had a science teacher in my uh, younger years that obviously saw something that I didn't see in in my uh, teenage years and advised that I go off to a ecology course, believe it or not, in Budavant in Cork um, in in my earlier days. And I think that's when it really opened up the door to me. Um, You know, through that summer in teenage years, I got a real interest in science and had a real grow for it. And, um, and, you know, I never lost that ever since, which is kind of interesting. And yet, explain to me why you went on after school to study international marketing. Yeah, that was that was it was a case of, uh, you know, in my younger years, um, uh, my father father passed away at a very young age. I was four when he passed away. So my mother was left uh, managing a team of 10 on her own. And um, the opportunity came my way uh, when I when I left school to get a fully ESF paid up um, um, grant towards uh, towards doing the international marketing or go down uh, yeah, the science route and have to, you know, pay for it myself or try and find that funds at that stage. And and that was really the uh, the decision there at that stage. I never lost the interest in science, but um, it was a it was a case of, you know, must and have. Um, so uh, yeah, I went down that route. Um, 
towards international marketing. And funny enough, um, my first role at a college was in a science-based um, organization. Now, I don't know how that lined up either, which was a startup, uh, a startup out of uh, Mount Marion um, in the virus area. So, so I kind of fell, you know, I kind of went off the pitch for a, a year or two um, down the marketing route and then came back fully in, in, into the science sphere again. So let's talk about that uh, startup you joined out of college then. Yeah, so so it was a it was a startup based out of Marion, um, headed up by a guy, uh, you know, he's a guy called Cormac Kilty. Cormac's like one of the godfathers of uh, biotechnology, um, you know, within I know within, Cormac, w- yeah, within, within Ireland, and um, I mean, he took me on as um, either his second or third hire, um, with the objective of looking at the you know looking at the globe commercially to see you know where where we could go with a product we hadn't got the product built at that stage um the product was for parvovirus b19 which was probably one of the first diagnostic it was the first diagnostic test for parvovirus b19 for detecting parvo and um my role was basically to set up all the channel uh, distribution partnerships around europe and then as the product got fda approved then moved into the u.s and um and and look at capturing that market that can't have been an easy journey to to get that approval uh, absolutely not but i mean you know it was also at a time when startups weren't as in vogue as they are now i mean the funding from ei wasn't available at that stage where you could get match funding there was no vcs around you know there's no vc houses around at the stage so um the company was basically run on an overdraft for quite a number of the first few years and you know you're you're literally you know living hand to mouth uh trying to make the sales to pay for salaries and pay for everything else but you know also trying to to grow the business and grow the product side of it so that was a it was a pretty good learning curve in terms of you know building a self-sufficient startup um in ireland from scratch two or three of us to start with and by the time i left it was at uh, about 68 people there and a revenue, you know, under ten million. So it was uh, it was quite phenomenal growth. Um, once all the channel distribution was set up and the products were starting to flow, um, but you know, it started from very humble beginnings. So, how long did you spend at Biotrin watching it grow to this enormous entity, this world leader? Yeah. So it's um, so you know, the first two years it was it was you know because we were kind of working hand to foot. I was probably there um, over a six to seven year period um, as it grew from strength to strength. Um, I then got approached by probably one of the biggest diagnostic companies in the world, Quest Diagnostics, who approached me to said you know to say, look, we want you to come in and head up our uh, in vitro pr- products division. Um, and Quest was a whole different ball game because I kind of moved from a startup Irish company, you know, living hand to mouth, moving to one of the biggest US companies around at the time. There were, I think they had four or 5,000 employees. They were at a billion dollar turnover. Um, and they had, the way Quest operates is they have about, well, now they have about 30 reference labs throughout each of the US states. They have one or two in France. They have one in London. Um, and what they do is they, try and diagnose these viruses or diseases that are unidentifiable so if a patient turns up in kentucky tomorrow 
goes into their labor goes into you know their doctor and they can't diagnose it normally that sample will come back to quest we then tried to develop a test to diagnose that so we would develop a test inside two weeks to try and diagnose that uh, disease and then um, over a six-month period we develop a diagnostic test to try and diagnose the, the disease um, so my you know my plan with quest was probably okay let's continue the learning curve here we'll probably spend you know five or six years here you know have a look at, uh, at how this organization um you know operates and how they build products um but i ended up staying 12 what years was your, what was your title role when you sorry um philip what was your title role when you moved into quest so they they took me on originally as sort of head of um, business development in vitro diagnostics head of head of the in vitro diagnostic business okay. development, um, but really what it was doing was to try and box up those viruses if you like and you know make them over the counter products to to laboratories and hospitals around the globe, um, and you know through my time there. Um, I probably developed about 59 different products in the infectious disease area. So, so you know, and you know, products like our, our diseases, viruses like coronavirus, were very much in my basket in terms of developing, you know, fast diagnostic tests that could try and earlier diagnose them. So, one or two of the ones that I worked on when I was there, one was H1N1. You probably remember the um, the H1N1 outbreak in 2008, 2009. Um, so we developed a diagnostic test to try and um, identify that virus. Um, reason being, we got a phone call from one of our labs down in Mexico to say, look, we have a new virus here. It's not shown up on any of the tests that we have. We don't know what it is. So we, we sent a team down there, brought back a an aliquot of the virus, if you like, and, and went to work on it and built a test for it inside two weeks. And then um, and then that test was used within the US to to diagnose all of the potential H1N1 cases. So, you know, there were some pretty um, groundbreaking tests developed uh, throughout that time there. But the company also developed at a, at a fairly substantial rate. Um, when I joined in, in 98, was it 98 or 99? It was at about a billion turnover. When I left in, in 2012, 13, it was at, um, it was at uh, 8 billion turnover. So it was a pretty phenomenal and growth. And what, what, how do you um, position your role within that growth personally? Well, I can't, I, I can't take credit for all of it, but um, it, was, it was, look, it was, it was a really interesting time and it was kind of, you know, there was no, you know, I think working within a U.S. organization like that, that doesn't, it runs on its own. It runs on its own capital, basically. It's not looking for outside VC. It's not looking for any sort of, you're not going to the markets. If you have a good idea, um, you're selling it internally to a senior management team, basically. And uh, once the sign-off is given, the product goes ahead. All the, you know, all the, all the, you know, powers that be all of the R&D teams etc plug in fully to develop the product and get fully behind it so you see you see a product come to fruition a lot quicker as long as the methodology and the whole reasoning behind the market for it is makes sense is sound. It, correct yeah um so and so this this little um this little journey to to understand the mechanism of a huge global player in the market uh, was supposed to be a little tip and dip and see what happens. How long did you end up staying at Quest? Yeah, so I, I was there in total um, twelve, almost thirteen years um, in total when I when, yeah when I look at it um, from start to finish. But it was. 
you know, every day was fun. It was, you know, it was like some days where, you know, you, you weren't sleeping through the night uh, developing product. And, you know, I mean, there was a real uh, drive to get the products out. I worked with some seriously talented people over there. Um, who are now running some of the top companies in the US, some of the top IVD companies like Biofire Diagnostics, like Thermo Fisher. They're run by colleagues of mine that worked in that team with me. And um, I think, you know, the ideas were great, but but it was the kind of boardroom that when you stepped into it, it was, you know, it was one board meeting. Um, you know, I can, I think I can tell this story, you know, without any confidentiality. Um, it was, it was one particular board meeting we were looking at a, um, we're looking at logistics and at that time we were spending 300 million a year uh, that was our, our our billing to fedex for for the shipments that they were moving around the states and around the globe for us and and one of my colleagues uh, you know sort of came up with a brain brain brainstorm during the uh, during the, the the board meeting and said you know why don't we set up our own um, why don't we set up our own logistics company internally um and he, well, he was, he was said, it was said to him, yeah, that's a great idea. Why don't you go away, build a strategic plan and come back to us, which he did. And, um, you know, we went on to purchase 10 737s and hire pilots to fly those 737s. And his job then was COO of the logistics division to run it because he came up with the idea. Um, and that's still operational now. So Quest, funnily enough, is the fourth largest logistics carrier in the US, all because of you know one person's idea to to try and bring that in-house and, and backward integrate it so you're 12 13 years now at quest you've learned uh, a massive amount you've you've transferred your knowledge from the the sort of struggling startup into the global player um what happened next is 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 a great part of your story were you already thinking about how you could use the knowledge and experience that you had for your own company or, or what did the approach come first? That's a great question. Um, you know, in my mind, I guess my next move wasn't going to be in, into a big corporate again, because, you know, you know, I guess, you know, through developing 59 different products at Quest, I brought a lot of success to that company. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, um, a shareholder owned company that was already set up way before I joined them. Um, so, you know, my idea in my own mind was, you know, the next company that I was going to be involved in would definitely be, you know, you know, I'd, I'd certainly be driving the ship as opposed to, you know, sitting at the top table, bringing advice and, and developing new products in that area. Um, so, so I guess I was approached then um, by, you know, a group of investors, um, Irish investors that said, look, you know, we have a company here, um, you know, we certainly would like to take it global and we'd like you to come in and, you know, um, take the thing over. Um, so from that discussion, I kind of built a strategic plan, had a look at the business, had a look at where I was at, had a look at to see where I could bring it, had a look to see where the new areas I could bring it into and kind of wrote my strategic plan for, you know, six months to a year, I would say, before I actually sat around the table and said, right, okay, let's sit down. I think we can do something here. And, um, and you know, and then we pulled a plan together in um, in 2014. And um, I went in to buy Alto um, with a group of investors. Um, so we bought the company. So what, what did Alto look like when you, uh, when you got to it? 
Alto was a success. It, it always has been. It's been generating cash from day one. Um, the original founders, two brothers from Rat Farnham, did a great job, you know, getting it to uh, where it was at um, when I acquired it in 2014. Um, they had a couple of household name companies that they were involved in making critical raw materials for them. Um, but I just saw a lot more scale there and I saw a lot more product potential in terms of developing new products in areas that they hadn't even touched on really so it was a successful business in its own right the scaffolding was there it was a case of you know putting the extra two layers of scaffolding up and you know put an, put an extra set of wings on the uh, jumbo at thirty thousand feet um is how i would describe it so that's what we've been doing since 2014 but certainly um i had a strategic plan in line um when I, you know, when when I went to buy the company in 2014. So I'm gonna I'm gonna see what the themes are now um, and how it stacks up. What what multiple of the revenue in 2014 are you now running at annually? So we're just under. Let me see. We're three x, nearly four x revenue now since I um since I took it over in in 2014. So we've gone to yeah almost four four times revenue um in that space of four or five years um and that's and you are literally at the you're you're at the coal phase of of COVID-19 now yeah so so you know I mean obviously I was tracking uh, COVID-19 very carefully um looking at new viruses I mean we've been working on Zika virus we've been working on dengue and chikungunya um, we were one of the first companies to develop a raw material for Zika virus in, in 2016 and 17 when the when the outbreak happened in uh, Brazil. And, you know, when that when that outbreak happened, we were, you know, fortunate enough to have a material there that all the major diagnostic companies could use. So we, overnight, we were, you know, our, our customer base, you know, trebled. And it went from, you know, some of the players in Europe, some of the diagnostic players in Europe and one or two in the US to all the major diagnostic companies in Europe, all the major players in the US, all the major pharmaceutical companies that had visions to build a, a vaccine and a diagnostic for Zika virus um, were plugged into us. Um, now that had its own challenges in terms of having the manpower to be able to deal with all the orders and deal with everything else that goes with that. And, um, you know, it was a good learning curve for all the team to to be able to cope with that. But I think that has stood well for us now because, all of those big companies, you know, the likes of Siemens, Roche, Abbott, you know, we deal with them all. And I think, you know, we're kind of, you know, back of their minds now when in January, um, the Chinese, you know, basically started talking about, um, you know, talking in detail about the, the, the virus itself. And then once we got our hands on the sequence for the virus, um, you know, we worked to develop a to develop a protein for it, and again, we were one of the first companies with a protein available for for diagnosing COVID nineteen. So we developed the nucleocapsid protein, um, which a lot of the scientific papers at the start were saying is is the one you should use to try and diagnose it. And lo and behold, we're back where we were in 2016-17. All the diagnostic companies wanted our material. All the pharmaceutical companies wanted it, um, but we haven't sat on our hands. Um, because if you look at COVID-19, you hear about antibodies and proteins and, you know, all these different, you know, terminologies that a lot of people wouldn't be familiar with. But the interesting thing with um, with the virus is you really, to diagnose it, there's, there's three or four different um, 
parts of the protein that you need to look at. So we looked at the nucleocapsid part of the protein. You also need to look at the S1 part of the protein and the S2 and, you know, um, and the RBD part of the protein. So there's probably four types you need to really look at. So we developed the N part of the protein, and now we've developed the S1, the S2, and the RBD. That's all going on behind the scenes. Um, so, so very quickly, we're going to have a portfolio of materials for diagnosing COVID that nobody else really has in Europe. Um, so, so to to put that into into lay terms, then you're yeah. talking about having a sort of a, a, a three sixty tool that can look at this problem from every angle. Correct. Yeah. So, so okay. you 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 could see you know what has happened here is interestingly enough, there's about 160 vaccine companies trying to work on vaccines for COVID nineteen, and there's probably in the region of three to four hundred diagnostic companies trying to develop diagnostic tests. Now, one can't work without the other because you need to be able to diagnose it correctly in in order to be able to treat it correctly with the correct vaccine, and you know to get that. Uh, clinical picture, that total clinical picture, you need to be looking at all parts of the protein in, in order to, or, or the key parts of the protein in order to be able to diagnose it correctly. So a lot of the earlier tests that came on the market in, 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 in the outbreak in February, March and April probably moved a little bit too quickly. Um, if you, if you think in, in, you know, if you think logically with diagnostic products, it can take anywhere from six months to 12 months to develop it, do the clinical trials. If you're building it too fast and putting it onto the market, you're kind of learning as you go along, which isn't the ideal scenario. And, you know, I think, um, Abbott were one of those examples that they, they put a test out a little bit too early. And then, you know, the, the science labs that were running it were saying, hold on, we're not diagnosing all the patients that are coming through with clinical symptoms. So, you know, what's going on? And they've had to go back to the drawing board now and, and relook at it. And, and that's where I'm talking about the, you know, the three or four different parts of the protein that you need to look at in a whole shot in order to get a, a complete picture on it. So you you started hearing the the mumbles in January from China, and um, I suspect at that point you knew something big was coming. Um, uh, why why did COVID nineteen take hold like nothing else? Uh, for me, it's there's one or two factors here that are really driving this. And look, I've worked in these viruses for 20, 25 years, but they've normally, you know, they've normally stayed in the tropics. A lot of these viruses have stayed in the tropics. So if you think of SARS, it it, it mainly kind of stayed in, in China, Korea, you know, Singapore in those markets. And if I think back to 2009, you know, in 2009, we didn't have as many airplanes in the sky. We didn't have as many people traveling around the place, freely moving, you know, from capital to capital, you know, on low budget airlines and moving country to country very quickly. So it was, I would argue, easier to contain a virus like this in the markets it was present in. Whereas, you know, with this virus, you know, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories as to how it moved across. But you had a lot of freely free free movement of people from China into Europe and the other way around from Europe back into China. So I think the, the spread of the virus has caught everybody, you know, unawares in terms of the speed that it's moved from country to country. But 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 China and Korea and, and Singapore and Hong Kong and these these countries are very good at um 
you know, identifying a virus like this, monitoring the virus by, you know, population. They do in-community testing very quickly and they come up with problematic areas and shut them down very quickly. We're not, we're not, a, we, we have never done this in Europe before. We're not used to it. And, and I think that's why it spread very quickly over here. But, you know, hopefully we'll get better at managing um, disease management through better diagnostics. Um, with a virus like this, or, you know, if any of its sister viruses appear over the next number of years. You took a call in March that really changed the direction of how the company was going to approach this sort of when 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 COVID had exploded onto the scene and was very much front, front and centre in Ireland. What happened at that point? Yeah, that was uh, that was a pretty interesting phone call for me. So, I mean, if you think about Alta, we're we're ninety five, ninety four, ninety five percent export. We do very little business in Ireland. Most of our, you know, disease markets are global. Um, you know, all of these emerging diseases, as I said, are in in emerging markets, and um, that's where we concentrate a lot of our business. Um, but you know, we're in the throes of COVID. If you can imagine, in in March, you know, we're trying to, you know, basically all of the, the the comms team are you know trying to deeply research the virus see if we've got all the strains if we're looking at the right area what else we need to develop in order to get the full picture for a clinical diagnostic test with our partners in europe and the us and then i got a phone call on a friday night um i can't remember which day it was march but it was a friday night anyway because i remember taking the call and um you know, taken in my front room and uh, it was, you know, a senior figure from the HSE saying this was at the time when reagents were front and centre on the news. I mean, Leo was on the news every night talking about we've got a problem with reagents, you know, we've got a really big problem. We can't do the testing. We want to go from you know, 5,000 tests to 25,000 tests a day. And they contacted me via, they smartly enough, um, they got my details from one of the board members in Alto, who then uh, reached out to me and said, look, would you be willing to take a call? And I said, yeah, look, I'll take a call from them, sure. And they said, OK, look, we've got a major problem. Um, we're trying to do this COVID testing, but we can't get the reagents because um, this very large company uh, based in Switzerland is not able to provide us with the materials because obviously the US and the UK had turned on at that point. And... Um, you know, they weren't willing to, or, you know, maybe, you know, through commercial reasons, they probably weren't able to supply Ireland. So any of the orders that had been placed were getting pushed out three and four and five months. So they said, look, we've got a major problem. We need a, a reagent um, to do the COVID testing. So they needed a what's called a, a lysis buffer reagent, which um, isolates the virus, isolates the COVID virus. And uh, they said, look, would you be able to develop this? And I said, OK, well, look, you're going to have to give me 24 hours in this one. Um, I'll go off and sit down with one or two of my partners and, uh, you know, we'll see one if we can if we can find the ingredients to make it and two if we're able to make it. So, you know, we were in the throes of growing our own business around COVID-19, but this was certainly one for the green jersey to, I mean, it's at the end of the day, we're talking about Irish patients in Irish hospitals, um, an Irish problem. And, you know, potentially we were able to solve it for them. So, you know, the next three or four days I spent a few sleepless nights um, and a lot of research brought me back to my college days to uh, to see if we could first locate the um the key ingredients to build the um the the reagent that was required to isolate COVID nineteen, and then two to see if we could do it in a very short time. So, we identified the materials, 
Um, we brought them in. We developed a prototype um, reagent within seven days. We had it in our National Virus Reference Center uh, within two weeks. Um, and then we did a full-scale build of the product at the beginning of April. So inside three or four weeks, we had concepted a product, designed a product, tested a product, and had it on the Irish market. So that went out to all the 20 reference, or the 20 uh, COVID testing centers around Ireland to to um, to isolate the virus, to allow the, the test centers to, to, to be able to run the, run the tests. And to put that in context, Philip, what would be the normal life cycle of getting a product to market like that? Well, if I if I go back to my quest days, I mean, I think I'd get laughed out of the boardroom if I said, you know, I'd concept a product and develop it inside four weeks and have it on the market within four weeks and test it. So normally a life cycle for a product like that, you're looking at 12 to 15 months by the time you develop the product, build it, you know, test it in the market, do your trials on it. Um, so this was like this was really at warp speed in terms of, you know, getting it developed and bringing it to market. But, I, you know, I, I'm kind of proud of, of the company and proud of what we did um, and also being able to, to help out, um, you know, an Irish problem that was, you know, in the, at the end of the day, it was, it was going to help out with Irish lives and diagnosing um, this virus earlier and, treat, you know, getting the patient samples run a little bit earlier as well. So your your focus on testing um, should not diminish the fact that you are working hand in glove with a major player for the vaccine. Correct. Yeah. So so we're working with. I mean, if you look at the the way you know, I mentioned those hundred and sixty vaccine companies that are working on the vaccine development at the moment. In my mind, there's two or three that are ahead of the curve, way ahead of the curve. Um, and two of those are Inovio and, and Moderna. Moderna have done um, their phase two clinical trials. You do obviously three phases of clinical trials before you bring the product to market. They've done their first two phases. They're in their third phase and they're probably moving at a speed faster than anybody else. So we've been working hand in hand with them, helping them with their clinical trials um, in order to get a vaccine on the market faster. Um and you know we're we're happy to be able to work with them, um, and we're also working with one or two German uh, vaccine developers to help them um, on the European front to develop a vaccine for COVID nineteen as well. So, if you like, we're working in tandem with the diagnostic companies to diagnose it. We're also working with the vaccine developers who are going to have the ultimate solution to to uh, be able to treat people with it. So you donned your uh, superhero cape to get the reagent uh, product to market to save Ireland. Uh, now I want you to whip out your crystal ball and in one line tell us how long, in your opinion, we'll have to wait for a vaccine. Okay, so I've got a fairly good insight on this because I'm working with one or two of the companies that are actually developing the I vaccine. I should hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, best case scenario is end of the year. So... So, you know, uh, look, I've I've been intimately involved in the phase two clinical trials. So, so I, you know, I think they've done quite well with that. Um, they, they already have an order from the U.S. government. The U.S. government have already pre-ordered the vaccine, even though it's not developed, um, which is a, you know, is quite a new phenomenon for me and I'm, I'm sure for everybody else. But um, but we're looking probably at the end of the year is, is a best guess um, for a vaccine availability. Now, whether that's available in the U.S. only, 
Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it's a US-based company, um, but there could be a lot of people flying. Sure, we have your number you, now, Philip. We can. Yeah. All, we'll give you a direct call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so best case scenario is the end of the year. Um, worst case scenario is the earlier part of 2021, um, depending on how the phase three clinical trials. But what I've seen in phase two, I'd be fairly confident that they're going to have something. Um, pretty good um, available by the end of the year, which is good news for all of us and all businesses, I would think. It certainly is, Philip, and and really optimistic for all our listeners and beyond. Um, I guess we have to talk a little bit about uh, EY. Um, I mean, the the network, uh, although it is a a very supportive network, it's more than that to you. I think a number of the alumni are, are, are really embedded in the work that you do with Alta. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you know, when um, when I went on the journey with EY last year, I mean, you know, the ex- the whole experience start to finish was it's one of the best programs I've been involved in. Um, and the reason I say that, I mean, I don't say that fairly flippantly. The reason I would say that is some of the biz- business leaders that are in the EY alumni are you know, they're 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 household name business leaders in Ireland that have built very very successful companies and continue to to grow them. And you know, being able to to link in with with those with that kind of network, just troubleshooting, you know, ideas that you have in your own business is phenomenal. Whether that be on a financial part, or whether that be on a, you know, on a day to day business operations part, I think it's 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 an incredible network. Um, but also, one or two of the the existing alumni are also business partners of ours. So we have one of the alumni. Um, runs our IT um, group for us, um, which we contract out. And, you know, they've been extremely supportive as we've, particularly in COVID, as we've moved a lot of people off site. Um, and then we've got there's other uh, business leaders in there in the life science space whom, whom I jump back and forth with, both with ideas on their business and ideas on my business. Um, and other, you know, leaders in the finance space as well, which are invaluable as we continue to grow and expand the businesses at, at Alto. So, you know, for me, it's a, it's an, it's, a, it's an extraordinary organisation and really a great um, uh, network to be involved in. Philip, from my point of view, I'm just very glad that you went through that EY Entrepreneur of the Year journey last year to give you time to free up this year to do the really hard work at high speed. Philip Noon, thank you so much for taking the time out of your extremely busy schedule. And we're really looking forward to watching your journey. Thank you. Thanks very much, Sonia. Thanks for listening and watching Architects of Business, made in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Thanks to all the team here at Joe and, of course, to our entrepreneur today, Philip Noon. If you haven't already done so, click subscribe to get brand new shows directly into your feed. The Architects of Business with EY Entrepreneur of the Year, telling the inspirational stories behind Ireland's most successful entrepreneurs.